Father, would you, uh, would you be pleased with the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts as we now look to what you have said to us in your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So if we're honest, we're uh, really clumsy when it comes to love, uh, just as human beings in general, but uh, especially in our society, I think, uh, that we're just, like everyone's longing to love others, and everyone's longing to be loved by others, but I think that uh, we're just bad at it. <laughs> we, uh, we just can't figure it out. And, th- and how I know this to be true is 99% of the songs in existence are about that very thing, about love and not being able to get love. So if, if love was not a thing, then uh, the music industry probably wouldn't even really be able to, uh, to exist. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think there, there's, there's two parts of it, though. You know, we, we want to be loved, and we also want to love. So we want to love, but we can't for whatever reasons. I mean, you think about it. We, we have a hard time even loving the people that we're supposed to love, or that's supposed to be easy to love. I mean, I think about friends. I mean, do you ever just find yourself getting annoyed, for almost no good reason, at someone who's a very close friend, or with other people in the church, you know, when you think about the community of faith, you know, like, I, I think that often we can get into these, like, quarrels of spiritual one-upmanship, where, like, someone's, you know, like, sharing, like, this legitimate thing. They're, like, getting into scripture memory, and they're like, yeah, I memorized John 3.16. And then the, next, the person is like, oh, yeah, I memorized John 3, the whole thing. Like, when, uh, well, I was actually, I'm memorizing the whole book of John. Like, well, I was memorizing the whole New Testament. You know, we just, like, get into these little, like, stupid spiritual things. And, you know, we, we, uh, we end up getting mad at others because they're advancing in the faith quicker than we are or whatever. I mean, even family members. You know, I think a lot of, many of us in this room probably come from broken families. And most of us probably do, to some degree or another. So the people that are closest to us, we want to love them, but we just, we have trouble doing it. And guys in, in particular, I mean, guys just in general are just utterly clueless when it comes to love. Like not even romantic love, just like br- even brotherly love, like in general. You know, it's like guys' version of love is just like there's nothing there and she's like, I love lamp, and that's that's about all that that's about all that's there when it comes to to uh, to guys and love. But on the other side, you know, we we not only want to love others, but we can, but we also want to be loved, but we aren't a lot of the times. So I just talked, I just got the guys and ladies. I think a lot of times I was talking to Allison about this, and and because um, I'm not a girl, if you didn't recognize. Um, so I was like, well, how, how do girls want to be loved? And what, what is that? And, uh, and she said, that, you know, like most girls, they, they, when they think about love, it, they're looking for someone to complete them, um, to make them whole. And so exhibit A is bachelor nation. Like that's just, that's what it is. Like it's just looking for that person that's going to finally make me a whole human being. And, you know, like, I mean, and sometimes we, we, we joke about this one where we want to be loved, but we aren't. Um, but I think it's a really serious thing when we, issues with our, our fathers in particular, when we talk about parents specifically with the fathers, I think, um, you know, it's easy to make light about that, but I mean, d- depending on how your relationship is with your father, especially from childhood, that, I mean, that can 
create really lasting and deep scars uh, for, for the rest of your life, or um, it can really, if you have a good relationship, it can really build you up. And so, but I think, um, I think a lot of people, um, a lot of people in this room probably have um, serious issues with, with their fathers in particular, and that causes a lot of issues. And then this is, uh, uh, this is another example of we want to be loved, but we aren't. Um, I remember last semester, um, there was a school shooting in Oregon at this community college. And I don't remember how many people got shot and how many were killed. Um, I mean, that's just the fact that it happened. But um, the, the guy who, who did it, he ended up shooting himself before it was all over. And he left a, a note, um, I, I think, Oh, he gave it to, uh, he, gave, he gave this box of, of notes to one of the people in the classrooms and made them hold on to it while he shot everybody else. And then this guy's job was to take this box of notes to the police after it was all over. So this guy takes this box of notes to the police, they read them, and he's chronicling the last few years of his life and just the loneliness, the depression, I mean, a lot of like racism in there as well. But one of the main things that uh, he said was the cause of him doing this was he was tired of not being loved, specifically by other girls. He couldn't, I mean, it sounds so silly, but I mean, he, he couldn't get a girlfriend and he was mad at these other guys who he didn't even know that could. And so he, one of the main things that instigated this school shooting was the fact that he couldn't get love and these other guys couldn't. So he went and specifically targeted guys that had girlfriends, which is pretty crazy. So when it comes to loving others, our neighbors and our enemies, we need help. Like we need help in this. We need direction. So we have to ask, what, is, what does the Bible have to say about this? What does the Bible have to teach us and tell us about uh, how to love, how to truly love, what it really is? So, uh, so tonight we want to look at, at a couple of things. We want to look at first, what does the Bible have to say about true love? Why do we struggle to love? And what is the power for love. So what does the Bible have to say about true love? Why do we struggle to love? And lastly, what is the power for love? So we're in Romans 12, and we're looking at verses 9 through 21, and we see, uh, we see a few things in this passage. And uh, we actually see a lot of things. There's actually 31 separate commands here. So uh, don't worry, I'm not going to walk through every single one for the next 45 minutes. But I, what, I, what I do want to do is point out uh, three of them that um, I think that we, we particularly need to hear tonight. The first one we see in verse uh, 9, the first verse of this passage, when it says, Let love be genuine. That's, uh, that sentence in the original language is really interesting. In the original language, there's no verb at all. It's just, it's just simply genuine love or sincere love. It's almost like this heading for now where, where uh, Paul was heading in his argument. Where he's coming from in this is he began in chapter 12 talking about, in view of the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So all of this, all where he's headed right now is he's saying, okay, look back under the face of God, under the works and the mercies and the love of God for you, all that Christ has done for you, in view of that, in direct view of that, do these things. And so this is kind of a new heading. He's saying, so in view of the mercies of God, genuine love, sincere love. That word there, genuine, uh, is literally unhypocritical. Not hypocritical. So what that tells us is our love should be not fake. 
not phony, not plastic. Um, but I think that is, especially in, uh, particularly in the, the culture that we're in, this, in the South, there's just this culture of niceness, right? Like every, I mean, everybody's nice. I remember uh, when I went to school in California, I'd come from, uh, from North Carolina, from, so I mean, it's kind of the South. Um, and so, and I went, over, I went to, to school there, and I remember like the first few weeks there, like when I was changing lanes, like waving to the person, and they literally just honk at you for waving. Like that's, a, but that's a thing here. You, if you don't wave, that's like a sin, you know, if someone lets you over. So there's just this, just pervasive niceness that we have here. And, and that's commonly confused with love. I think that is, I, I think this kind of just niceness, this veneer of pleasantness, is a, a version of disingenuous love. I think what can happen so easily is um, we can be really passive-aggressive. You know, we, we can have this outward um, pleasantness towards someone, but on the inside be, uh, be bitter and have a spirit of gossip and, and backbiting. And so I think that is something that, particularly in our culture, we have to be really careful about. Um, is to not let our love be disingenuous, but to let our love be genuine, to let it be real, to let the mask come off and be real with other people and let them be real and let them, uh, let them sin against you and extend grace to them. And when you sin against others, let them extend grace to you. I mean, let, let there be some honesty there. So true love is genuine. It's sincere But then in uh, the next verse, in verse 10, it says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So that first word there for love is is this word that uh, really means be devoted. Be devoted to, to one another. And it says, be devoted to one another with brotherly affection. So we're we're to see this. He's talking specifically in the context of the community of faith. So we're to see this as family. We get to see this as family. And you know, I mean, the, the, the thing about it is, is um, you know, we are just talking not too long about just the brokenness that's, that so many of us come from, but that's not new. I mean, if you think about families from the beginning, all throughout Scripture, I mean, they, they're constantly failing. Let's just take the first one, Cain and Abel. Seriously, I mean, it's just like the first one. I mean, it's like, not, I mean, it's not even that far from the source and they're already killing each other, you know? So, I mean, it's just like families already, always been uh, something that fails us and, and doesn't end well. But in the community of faith, we have a true family. And this is because Christ, I mean, you think about Christ himself who said, who, who is his family? He says, it's those who do the will of God. Those are my brothers and sisters but I think this is, this is hard for, for Westerners in particular, like us, who are very individualistic, to be devoted to someone else. That's really, that's a foreign concept. That's a foreign concept for me. I don't think like that. I, I think me, myself, I, and that's about it. Um, but to be devoted to someone else, to put energy into considering where they're coming from, considering their needs, considering their hopes and joys and fears. I mean, that's, that's something that takes work, but that's what, that's what we're called to. We're called to be devoted 
to one another. And this idea here carries on with outdo one another and showing honor. So this is, this is putting others first. So same idea, but just another expression of it. Be devoted, put others first. I mean, what, what this tells us is when we're outdoing one another and showing honor is that every single person we meet is someone made in the image of God. Someone who is precious and important. And so this means that they ought to be listened to. That we ought to be aware of their struggles. And Paul even goes so far as to say we should make a competition out of this. Like there's allowed, there's competition allowed in the community of faith. And it's the competition of outdoing each other. And considering the other as more significant than ourselves. There's room for that competition because in that competition, everybody wins. So really what this shows us is that the essence of love is getting out of your own head, (laughs) crawling out of your brain long enough to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. And so, um, I mean, just being honest, like this, this, this sermon is, is for me as much as it is for anybody. Um, I I get lost in my own head so easily, um, in the midst of a conversation, a one-on-one conversation, I'll get lost thinking about what I've got coming up next or just anything really like just almost like this invisible wall just goes up between uh, myself and other people. And so this is a difficult thing, but this is, this is what, we're, what we're called to, to consider their needs, to concentrate on it, to, to really take it to heart, to take them to heart as a person. But then it goes even further. And so we're going to skip uh, a few of these things, and we're going to look, we're going to skip down into verse 17 through 21. So up until now, this has been talking about people that we like and that are like us, specifically in the, the context of the community of faith. But now this, this idea of genuine love, sincere love, is to be extended not only to our neighbors, but also to our enemies. The interesting thing about this is um, a number of commentators and historians have said that if you go back and look at the history of the church and leading up to the church, you'll see that there's, there's no philosopher or religious guru, no one's saying this. No one's saying this in particular, that we should love our enemies. This is something that is legitimately, distinctively Christian. Like this wasn't on, this wasn't on anybody's mind pre-Christ. And so the basic principle here with, uh, with loving our enemies is, is this. It says it in the beginning here and then at the very end. It says, do not, become, or do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The idea here is that the minute that we re- re- repay evil with evil, the battle with evil is lost. But that's our natural inclination. We, we, someone does evil to us, we want to... We wanna, fight back with evil. But as soon as we've done that, evil has just prevailed. And so the only way to get around that is to be nice (laughs) in the face of evil, to to extend uh, kindness. So there's three particular things that it looks like to extend uh, love to our enemies. Three things that, that love looks like when it's extended to our enemies. One is in verse 18. When it says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So what this means is we shouldn't avoid our enemies. 
the people that were hostile with, where, whoever they are, whether they're family members, people on your campus, coworkers, people in this room, which I guarantee that there's something in here between at least two people. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't avoid them. In verse 20, it says, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. So we should love them not only with words, but we should love our enemies with actions as well. And the purpose of this is specifically that they would repent. So how this happens is the, the whole like being nice to them in the midst of them being evil heaps burning coals on their head, which normally like in my manipulative heart, I'm like, that sounds awesome. Okay, so like that's how I get to like get back at somebody is just to be nice. Like, so this isn't for their, their ill. This is for their good. The, the idea here is that when you respond to, to someone who is being evil to you, who's being hurtful to you, who is backstabbing you, when you respond in love and kindness and grace and forgiveness, you cause shame to come on that person. Like it reveals to them how empty and ridiculous it is what they're doing. And the hope is that that actually would turn into repentance and that they would see what they're doing for what it is and that they would turn and change and trust in Christ. And the third thing that we see is pulling back up into verse 19. It says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Which this is, this is a hard one. Because this, this is our natural inclination. Is to slap somebody when they slap us. Right? I mean, we think, okay, well, if they pushed us first, then I'm allowed to push them. But we're called to not avenge ourselves. I don't think it's by accident that Paul reminds us, right before he says that, he, he reminds us who we are. He says, beloved. Beloved, you have been loved. So don't avenge yourselves. So that is a, that's, a, that's an overview of what we, what we see about what the Bible and this specific passage has to say about Christian love, that it is sincere, it is devoted to others, and also that it extends to our enemies. But why do we struggle with this? I mean, you you read this and you think, that's awesome. I wish I was a part of a church like that. I wish I was like that. But I'm not. Like, I, for whatever reason, I can't, I I don't know, I I can't bring myself to forgive people who have wronged me. I have trouble even loving my own friends and caring about them and putting their needs before me. So why? Why do we struggle like this? Why why, Why can't we love genuinely? Why do we have to put on the mask to fake love. I think it comes down to this. It's, it's that we are turned in on ourselves. I mean, if love is fundamentally being opened up to the other, the reason we struggle with that is we are turned in on ourselves. And I, I mean, if I'm, I sh- if out of anybody, I struggle with this the most, honestly. Like it, is, it is so, I mean, I, it is so hard for me to, to do this. Like this is, I've been, try, I've been committing this passage to memory from Philippians 2 that talks about considering the other more significant than yourself. Trying to beat that into my head because this is, this is not something that comes naturally for me. I mean, honestly, if I'm just being really honest and transparent, um, and I hope that some of you sinners out there can identify with this, but when I walk into a room, many times I walk in and think just immediately, I'm the most important person in this room. That sounds terrible, but it's true. 
I mean, I, I could probably walk into any room and feel that way. There's just this utter disregard for, for other people naturally. It's a struggle. It's really, really hard to consider the other, to care about them. So how do you know if you're turned in on yourself? I think there's a, there's a few ways that you can know that you're definitely turned in to yourself. So a couple of things. One, do you constantly find yourself saying, I'm too busy? I think this is, this is probably one of the, the main excuses that for those of us who are in school, you have jobs, there's a lot of stuff going on, nine times out of ten, our excuse for not really devoting ourselves to others is, I'm just, I'm busy. I got stuff going on. I got to get here. I got this to do. I got to turn that in. And we, we can be so busy that we just rush past everybody. Or do you, uh, do you ex- and this is, this is a hard one, do you excuse yourself for thinking that your hurt is too deep? So, so when we're talking about enemies who have wronged us, forgiving them, do you feel like you're, you are exempt from that because the wrong that has been done to you is past the standard that he must be talking about in this passage? Because the thing about it is, is there is no qualification for this. There is no, there's no, Paul didn't say it, do this, forgive your enemies if they have stayed under this amount of, of wrongdoing to you. There, it's limitless. Or what about this? Uh, uh, a clue that, that you might be uh, turned in on yourself. Do you leave every interaction and conversation with people thinking and worrying? What do they think about me? Were they impressed with me? Did they like me? Did they approve of me? When we do that, that's, that's a version of that invisible wall going up between people. Because in that interaction, there's absolutely no consideration of the other. It's, it's pure consideration of, of self and what that person could contribute to me and do for me. And how can they relate to me? And, and again, I feel like this is all I'm saying tonight, but that's, that is very true of myself. Or what about this one? Do you have trouble saying no to other people? I think that is a key that, that, that you might be turned in on yourself if you've made an idol out of being needed. You feel like you, you, you're so important that you, you can't possibly say no to someone. And so I think really, we so often think that our problem, the reason we're so clumsy with love is that we don't love ourselves enough. But really, the problem is that we love ourselves too much. We're, we're, we're drowning in self-love and, and a view of ourselves that is so high that we have no energy or mental margin to care about the other and to consider their needs. I think just generally we lack the energy and the motivation to do this as well. I think we're worried about our reputation at times of, okay, if I, if I associate with this type of person or this specific person, what will people think of me? So how, how in the world, how in the world can anybody do what, what Romans 12 is talking about? Or is this just some theoretical ideal out there that whenever I die and go to heaven, I'll be like that. But for now, this is just, just nice to know. I mean, can we, can we live like that? Can we be a community of faith that is beaming with love for one another? Beaming with love for our enemies? I mean, can we, can God grow us up into a, a garden full of fruit? 
from his spirit, from seeds of faith planted in us at the spirit waters? I mean, how can this happen? Can we love our neighbor, let alone our enemies? The question becomes, what is the power for love? Where's the energy come from? And it's this. This is, this is where the energy, this is where the power comes from. It comes from trusting that you yourself were once an enemy. And the one whose enemy you were did not strike vengeance on you, did not pour out wrath on you, but took that very wrath on himself. We ourselves were enemies of God and God himself intercepted the wrath meant for us on himself. Jesus did not avenge us, his enemies. Rather, he died for us. And it's not that God simply withheld his his anger and his vengeance, but he poured it out on himself. And so the only way we we can live this sincere love out practically, really, actually do it, is where we started in the very beginning of Romans 12. In view of God's mercies, living under that, having that hover right over you every day, every moment, step by step, trusting in that, looking to that. So it's only the gospel, only the gospel that can, that can enable us to love others like we so long to be loved ourselves. We can give that to others. We can be freed from wanting that for ourselves and actually give that very thing that we want to others. So how is this? I think there's a few ways that the gospel does this. The gospel reminds us of how patient God is with us. You ever just think about that? Like how patient he is with you. I think about myself. I think about where I ought to be after this many years of following Christ. Like, and he still loves me. He still forgives me. He still welcomes me into his family. The gospel helps us think about ourselves with sober judgment, like it talks about earlier in, uh, in Romans 12, because we realize that we are sinners. And yet we also realize in that same moment that we're justified, we're declared right and welcomed and adopted and loved by God himself. And the gospel enables us to sincerely and lovingly share in the highs and lows of others. Talks about that. Talks about uh, it's pulling on on the very words of Christ, but rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. The gospel can actually enable us to do that. I mean, you think about like, you know, ring ring by spring is coming around right about now, and so if you're single, okay, um, you probably don't have a good chance right now of of that happening to you. I'm sorry, um, but so let's say you know you're single and you've got all these friends that are dating and now they're getting engaged. How in the world can you rejoice with them with that? Practically, I mean, this is, this is just practical outworking of this passage. Naturally, you don't want to at all, but you actually can. When your heart is satisfied with who Christ is and what he has done for you, when your credibility is not in your marriageableness and is just in who you are in Christ, then when, when, a, when a friend of yours gets engaged and gets married, you don't, you don't lose your sense of credibility and, and validity. You have that in Christ perfectly. You can actually, you can actually do that. The gospel can actually help us 
be nice to our friends who are rejoicing. We can rejoice with them. And lastly, the gospel tells us that there is a judge, and he can be trusted to judge the wrongs in the world done to us and done to others. The gospel promises justice, and the gospel promises that we're not the ones who have to give it. Reminds us of that. So that's the power for love, but how does it actually enable us to love? I mean, what it, what it really comes down to is, is this. When we're thinking about what love is, it's, it's the idea of opening up your heart enough to give it to somebody else. Jesus has done that. Jesus has given us his heart so that we might then give others our hearts. It is, we view, I'm sorry, we love in view of his love. I mean, and I think where this really gets, again, practically played out is with what we were talking about earlier, the the, the idea of busyness. I think that is so pervasive in, in the college time it's it's just it's it's a legitimate thing that i think so many of us struggle with and i too myself struggle with that as well but i i think what we have to get out of is letting our schedule dictate our love and begin letting our savior dictate our love i think somebody we look at our schedule and think okay there's so much going on i can't possibly give margin to anybody but what we have to do is not live in view of our schedules and our planners and our calendars but live in view of the mercies of god and I think that there are, there are a lot of opportunities to, to love others in the midst of being busy. I think one is just showing up. Showing up for your friends or showing up to um, gatherings of the, the, the community of faith. Because, I mean, these are the contexts in which the one and others of Scripture get worked out. And every time that we, we gather together and every time you're with friends and every time you're with anybody, there's an opportunity for faith to work itself out in love. So just show up. Ask questions. I think that's a really simple way to to open yourself up to another, to get them to open up so that you might uh, come to know what burdens they have and that you can bear with them, what their fears are, what their joys are. Slow down. Be willing to to drop it. I mean, be willing to drop the tasks uh, for the sake of a human being that's right in front of you. I think of so many times I've lost opportunities to care for somebody because I have my head buried in a book. And while it's important, I think we have to keep things in perspective. So you see, like God actually can. He can transform you and he can transform us from being plastic, fake people into people who actually love one another, who are devoted to one another, who are sincere in, in, in our love for one another. And, and the only way we can do this, and this is just kind of recapping all that's said here, the only way we can do this is when we remember that Jesus has loved us with brotherly affection, when we remember that Jesus has outdone us in showing us honor, when we remember that Jesus was not slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit, even to the point of death, death on a cross, for you and for me, when we remember that Jesus contributed to our need for salvation, our need for life, and that he's shown us hospitality by bringing us into his family, it's when we remember that Jesus has blessed us, those who persecuted him, when we remember that Jesus identifies with us so deeply as to rejoice with us when we rejoice and to weep with us when we weep, 
when we remember that Jesus associated with us the lowly, when we remember that Jesus did not avenge us, but took the wrath of God on himself. And finally, where this text closes, where it brings us tonight, where it brings us that we can be transformed into people who genuinely love others, when we remember that Jesus fed his enemies. He fed them the bread of life. He quenched the thirst of his enemies. He gave them living water. We, his enemies, he has given us himself. He is the bread of life. He is the living water. He has cured our hunger and quenched our thirst. He has not left us hungry and thirsty. And so now we want to respond to this by observing the Lord's Supper. By looking at the elements in which he has done this, the bread which represents his body, the bread of life, and the cup which represents his blood, which is truly the living water. When we take of it, when we eat of it, when we partake of it, when we drink of it, we never hunger again. We never thirst again. We can be so satisfied by that, by remembering that we have been loved, that we can actually be transformed, throw off the mask, and love the unlovely. And so I want to invite you to, to bow your heads and, and close your eyes as we prepare to, uh, to take the Lord's Supper. I just want to invite you to, um, to reflect on this passage and anything that the Spirit uh, particularly drew your attention to. Um, And as you're prayerfully reflecting on the word of God and the way in which the spirit is speaking to you, um, this meal is, is not a, a meal to, uh, to be afraid of because you might be struggling with sin. This is a meal for sinners. This is a meal for the weak. This is a meal in which Jesus invites us to his table with weak faith saying, I can strengthen you. I can, I can mend your heart so that you might open up to be able to love others. So Father, we do thank you now as we just in a moment are going to get the privilege of coming to your table to eat the bread of life and to drink the living water which truly is Christ. God, would you bless our souls? Would you encourage our faith? Would you lift us up to you? Would you transform us to be like Christ, make us more like him that we might receive his love and extend his love? in his name we pray these things amen so it was on the night that jesus was betrayed that he took
the bread and he broke it. And as he broke it, he said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and he says, take, drink this. This is the blood of the new covenant, my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so as we take the bread and we take the cup, we do this feasting on Christ in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Thanking him for what he's done for us and the sacrifice of his body and his blood. And so um, so I want to invite you to come. When you're ready, come. And, and what you'll do is you'll take a piece of the bread, you'll dip it into the cup, and then... Um, Feel free to partake of it as you walk back to your seat or when you get back to your seat. We won't wait to all take it together, so we'll do this on our own. But um, when you're ready, uh, you can come forward.